Hello and welcome to the Women Inspire podcast with me, Laura Adams. This is the podcast that inspires us by honouring remarkable women past and present. Women whose achievements have perhaps gone unrecognised, been forgotten or at times completely erased and whose stories are crying out to be told. In November, after a brilliant campaign, a hotly anticipated statue was unveiled in Newington Green, North London. It is by the artist Maggie Hambling and depicts a small, naked silver woman arising from an amorphous mass of female forms. On the plinth is inscribed, I do not wish women to have power over men, but over themselves. The statue honours an intriguing and brilliant author, philosopher and early feminist. It has caused huge controversy, but however you feel about it, the statue gives us a wonderful opportunity to remember this clever, complex and unconventional woman and her very important legacy. Today we chart the life and work of Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary was born on the 27th of April 1759 in Spitalfields, East London, into a dysfunctional but relatively prosperous family whose money had been acquired through silk weaving. The second of seven children, after her birth Mary was sent away to a wet nurse, returning home when she was one. Throughout her childhood the family moved several times, first to Epping Forest in Essex and later to Yorkshire, where her father attempted to present himself as a gentleman farmer. He failed dismally and over the years gradually lost the family fortune. Her father was an abusive alcoholic who brutalised his family. Desperate for her mother's affection, Mary would do everything to please her, but to her dismay would be repaid with harsh and unjustified punishments for minor misdemeanours. Her mother had seemingly had the life beaten out of her and could do little to resist. At night, Mary would listen to her mother screaming out in pain as she was raped and beaten by her father. Eventually, Mary rebelled and would lie outside their bedroom door to stop her father going in. Despite getting no thanks from her mother, who accused her of inflaming his rage, Mary persisted in taking up her nightly post. Her strength of character was apparent too when she fought her tyrannical and overindulged elder brother Ned, who would take pleasure in torturing small animals as well as his younger siblings. By the age of 11, Mary had taken over many of the domestic tasks at home, looking after her younger brothers and sisters and defending them against their father. The favourite son, Ned, was sent away to get a gentleman's education. In contrast, Mary received little formal education herself. She learnt to read at home, but in Beverly she attended a day school where the girls' curriculum would consist of needlework and simple addition. Apart from that, she was entirely self-taught, but devoted herself to her studies, and this included learning several foreign languages. The situation in her own family made her acutely aware of the discrepancy in the education of boys and girls, and it made her determined to address the injustice. In reference to her brother, she would later write that such indeed is the force of prejudice that what was called spirit and wit in him was cruelly repressed as forwardness in me. The truth was that at the time, education for a woman was seen to harm your chances of making a good marriage. It was a commonly held belief that if you had any learning, it should be kept a profound secret. Mary formed a strong attachment at school with the serious-minded and well-read Jane Arden. 
It would be the first of a number of possessive relationships in Mary's life, and whilst platonic, took on the passion of a romantic attachment. Jane was from a learned family, and her father would encourage Mary's intellectual curiosity. She was ambitious and realised by now that education was the key to her future. Having said that, it was around this time that through Jane she acquired a social life which she threw herself into enthusiastically. However, when Mary was 15, the Wollstonecraft family were forced to move back to London due to her father's debts and they settled in Hoxton where life became steadily ever more gloomy. Mary needed to escape, but having witnessed her father's abuse did not see marriage as an option. Whilst her brothers were able to gain their independence and move away, Mary felt stuck and her mental health suffered. She stopped eating or washing her hair and suffered headaches and other ailments. Fortunately for her, neighbours Reverend and Mrs Clare took her under their wing. It was from Henry Clare that she was introduced to the ideas of John Locke, the philosopher whose beliefs in equality, independence and toleration chimed so readily with her own. The following year, Locke's influential ideas would go on to inform Thomas Jefferson's claims for American independence. Against her family's wishes, Mary took a job as a paid companion in Bath for a difficult employer which she hated. Here she was introduced as an onlooker to the superficiality of high society, with which she was not impressed. Proud of her own impoverished position, she felt superior and purposely wore only simple dresses and no makeup. She was more interested in relieving the suffering of the poor, and by now was reading Rousseau with his arguments that obedience and subordination were symptoms of societal oppression. His philosophy that man has a right to independence, she applied also to woman, and through this idea she justified the break that she had made with her family. However, in 1781, her mother became seriously ill, and Mary reluctantly returned home. Throughout her mother's two-year illness, she was strongly reliant on her eldest daughter. Self-sacrifice was seen as a daughter's duty, and interestingly, the men of the family almost completely vanished at this time. Mary's father arrived home with a new wife just days after her mother's death. Mary now moved in with her friends, the Blood family. Mary had formed a particularly close attachment with the daughter, Fanny, and for once in her life she felt loved. By now, her younger sister Eliza had married a shipbuilder, Meredith Bishop. In less than a year, Eliza gave birth to a little girl, but soon Mary received a letter from Bishop asking if she could come quickly. On arrival, Mary found that Eliza was suffering a severe breakdown, initially believed to have resulted from a traumatic birth. Mary soon noticed, however, that Eliza would shudder in her husband's presence, and after several weeks ascertained that she had been subjected to persistent marital rape though at the time the term did not even exist and in fact rape within marriage was not recognised in Britain until 1991. In the 18th century a wife was her husband's property and they were aware that at any time Bishop had the legal right to send Eliza to an asylum which was a common solution for troublesome wives. The injustice of this would stay with Mary and inform her most famous later work, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Mary knew she must help her sister escape. When Bishop left the house one January day, they hurriedly hailed a coach and left. 
a furious bishop cut Eliza off without a penny. And as legally the baby girl was her father's property too, he refused to let Eliza see her daughter and sadly the little girl died soon after. Eliza suffered depression for the rest of her life. The event also damaged the reputation of the Wollstonecraft family, so with no prospect of marriage now, all the girls would need to get jobs. Mary's ingenious solution was to start a school. Now more than ever, she wanted to teach girls to have independent minds in order to create a society in which women could exist on their own terms. But she needed money, backers and a building. Thankfully, she met the like-minded Hannah Burr, who was a wealthy widow, and she was able to help. Their intention was to encourage girls to be independent thinkers so they could contribute to society and live meaningful lives. The school was built in the pretty village of Newington Green, just north of London, which was known to be a magnet for radicals. The Wollstonecraft sisters settled into the schoolhouse and Mary persuaded her friend Fanny Blood to join them. Mary was now living independently, doing a job which made her happy and for which she had a true vocation. Most of her students were girls aged between 7 and 15. She believed each student was unique and should be treated as individuals. The girls were treated with respect and compassion and she championed exercise and healthy eating. She was invited to join a weekly discussion group for reformers led by the minister Dr Richard Price at his Unitarian chapel nearby. She drew inspiration from his sermons and shared Price's passion for reform. Here she mixed and debated with the leading intellectual radicals of the day. The chapel still exists and has been described as the birthplace of feminism. However, by now relationships at the school between the women were strained and as Fanny's health began to fail due to tuberculosis, she left the school for the sunnier climes of Portugal where she was married. Mary travelled to Lisbon to be with Fanny when her baby boy was born, but sadly within a week both Fanny and the baby were dead. Mary had lost her best friend and was inconsolable. On her return to England, she found the school had failed without her and it was decided it should close. She was in despair, but help came through her friend John Hewlett, who suggested she write a book. It was time to share her ideas with the world. Her ideas poured out onto the page. Why were women's choices so restricted? What did young women have to suffer in order to seek independence? Who knew what an educated woman could contribute to the world? In Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, her ideas were not only new and original, but so was her voice, which was fresh, direct and colloquial. She wrote in the way she spoke. Joseph Johnson, one of the most respected publishers in London and a committed reformer, agreed to publish. He would become her mentor and father figure. Despite earning £10 from the work, she was in debt after the failure of the school and for a brief time worked as a governess in Ireland. And it was at this time that she wrote a semi-autobiographical novel, Mary, a Fiction. But she loathed the job and was eventually dismissed by her despised employer, Lady Kingsborough. She returned home, by now 28 years old, and determined to earn her living by writing. The novel was soon published and more books followed. She also worked for Johnson as a translator and reviewer for his journal, 
the analytical review, and thus achieved her aim of financial independence. She refused to follow fashion and was described as a philosophical sloven by one observer. She also gave up eating meat and lived frugally in order to discover the very essence of herself. In 1789, the French Revolution began. Mary was a staunch supporter of the Republican ideals and her pamphlet, A Vindication of the Rights of Men, was published the following year as a riposte to a work by British statesman Edmund Burke in which he had defended the inherited rights of the monarchy. In her pamphlet, Mary expressed her opposition to practices such as the slave trade and support for human rights, and when her anonymous first edition was published, her ideas were discussed enthusiastically, particularly by London radicals who were exponents of the Enlightenment, the social revolution that celebrated reason as the core of human identity. It is interesting to note that in a later edition, when she added her name, the discussions in relation to the pamphlet became all about her gender. In 1792, Mary published the groundbreaking work which has become known as one of the seminal texts of the feminist movement, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. It took her only three months to produce 300 pages, though she said herself she was dissatisfied with it and that she should have given herself more time. In it, she challenged the notion that women exist only to please men, and she proposed that women and men be given equal opportunities in education, work and politics. She thought intellectual companionship should be the ideal of marriage, and pleaded that no longer should women be defined by their marriage, but by themselves. Some of her arguments, such as the idea that a national education system be established to operate mixed-sex schools, and the idea that women should have the right to work and be able to support themselves, were way ahead of their time. The book had its detractors, such as Horace Walpole, who labelled Mary a hyena in petticoats, but the impact of her work was immediate and positive in her own intellectual circles. Around this time, she became entangled with the married painter Henry Fuseli, and though deeply in love, she insisted it was in a purely spiritual sense. It is said that she arrived banging on the door of his house one day, asking to see his wife, and suggested to her that she move in with them. On being thrown out of the house by Fuseli's horrified wife, the affair was over. In 1792, Mary travelled to France to experience the French Revolution for herself. She arrived in the middle of the terror, where she saw for herself the horrific mass executions. Her horror and disillusionment was profound. She met the unscrupulous American writer Gilbert Imlay in Paris and fell passionately in love with him. She was soon pregnant with his child and their daughter Fanny was born. Though she was registered at the American embassy as Imlay's wife, they never actually married. She followed Imlay back to London, but his infidelity caused Mary to attempt suicide by overdosing on laudanum. Still in love with him, she travelled to Scandinavia on a mission to recover stolen goods for Imlay and produced some of her finest writing on the trip, only to find more evidence of betrayal on her return. She attempted suicide again, this time by jumping from Putney Bridge into the River Thames, and she was rescued by a boatman. She eventually recovered and pleaded for a reconciliation, but to no avail. It was not long after this that she met and fell in love with the philosopher William Godwin, 
a leading radical of the day. On discovering that once again she was pregnant, the two were married, though this was met with horror by some of her friends who had assumed she was already married to Imlay. Finally, Mary was happy and she had the union she had always hoped for. The two were devoted to each other, but were keen to keep their independence and both were excited about the birth of their child. On the 30th of August, Mary gave birth to a baby girl, another Mary, about whom we shall hear in the next podcast. The birth was difficult and the placenta had to be removed manually. Complications from this caused infection and Mary Wollstonecraft died 11 days later at the age of 38. The grief-stricken Godwin, who Mary had claimed to be the kindest, best man in the world, believed he would never find happiness again. But two years later, he proudly published her memoir, in which he outlined not just her writing and political views, but also her unconventional lifestyle and her sexual exploits. It did little to enhance her reputation, and she was condemned by many, such as sociologist Harriet Martineau, who claimed her to be a poor victim of passion, with no control over her peace, except when the needs of her individual nature were satisfied. Though her legacy was damaged at the time, it is surely the unconventionality of her life and her willingness to live independently, which she believed was the right of all women, that endeared her to later feminists. I find it interesting that the consternation with which her statue has been greeted recently appears to mirror the complicated feelings that Mary herself inspires. She was a contradictory character, a woman with such intellect, reason, insight and idealism, but who was also a woman of deep passion which caused her to make terrible decisions and we might find this disappointing. But I wonder if her internal struggles are what endear her to us. She had a brilliant mind and has left an extraordinary legacy But like all of us, she was flawed and a conflicted human being. And the fact that we can relate to her pain is the reason that even though she lived 250 years ago, I feel like we could reach out and touch her. And at the end of the day, she shows us that even when we are at the mercy of our passions and our emotions, it is still possible to contribute and change the world. So thank you, Mary Wollstonecraft. We owe you a huge debt. Thank you for listening to the Women Inspire podcast. If you'd like to know more about Mary Wollstonecraft, please see the podcast page of our website, womeninspire.co.uk, where you can also read our blogs and find out about forthcoming virtual tours. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and it would be wonderful if you could leave us a review. Join us next week for a podcast about another Mary, Wollstonecraft's talented novelist daughter. In the meantime... All the best until...